Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com. You're listening to Move Forward Radio, a podcast featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts with advice on how you can move forward. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Eric Reese. Marka Rogers envisioned spending her life in the world of dance, particularly after being admitted to study with the renowned Alvin Ailey Dance Theater at a relatively young age. And, as it's turned out, she still is very much involved with dance today in her early 60s. But to say that there have been some twists and turns along the way would be as much a case of understatement as it would be to call an intricately choreographed ballet a little bit of fancy footwork. In fact, Marka has sustained and worked hard to overcome not one but two devastating injuries during a life that's ranged from privilege to near subsistence, from ballet to firefighting, from deep frustration to hard-earned success. Along the way, she's learned a lot about herself, about the healthcare system and how it's evolved and hasn't, and about the power of determination, ingenuity, self-advocacy, and positive thinking. Marka's story started in a Cossadin environment in Baltimore, required wrenching adaptations later on, and continues, very much on her own terms, today in Charleston, South Carolina, albeit with the help of a wheelchair, a service dog, and some primo leg braces. The one constant is that Marka has never hesitated to speak up for herself. That said, let's turn the mic over to her. For as far back as I can remember, all I really ever wanted to do was dance and be a professional dancer. I was introduced to ballet and theater at a very early age by my parents who were interested in art from a consumer perspective, but never really being a part of it as artists. My mom was pretty talented, but never pursued that. In the 50s, young girls got married and had babies. I wanted to take ballet as long as I could remember in elementary school. I guess when I was about five, six, my parents put me in a local ballet school, and nothing else mattered in my life. Michael, where where was this? This was in Baltimore. I lived right on the edge of Baltimore City and Baltimore County. So you were you were interested in I, dance from from an early age, and sort of uh, what yeah. uh, what happened from there? I come from a very strict family. Education was the most important thing. My parents were tough. You know, if you fell down, get up, you're fine. I think my parents really defined at a very young age uh, my course for learning discipline, ethics. Of course, you know, I think we all get that at an early age. But my parents were pretty adamant that we had to be very independent and educated and very disciplined about life. So I don't, I don't think it's too much foreshadowing to indicate that these are things that are going to come in handy for you later on in life. Correct, correct. As I, I went through school, I was in a Jewish parochial school at an early age, but on the other side of my family, we went to Catholic and Lutheran church. Then I went to a very ritzy private girls' school on the preparatory school for Bryn Mawr College, Bryn Mawr School for Girls in Baltimore, where, again, education was fundamental. 
and all I wanted to do was dance. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I did well in school. I didn't have an option, but that was not my primary focus. Academia was not my focus. I wanted mm-hmm. to perform. I got involved with um, several local theaters and did local um, musical theater as well as ballet growing up. And when I finished high school, I was going to go and dance. There wasn't support for that from my family. Mm -hmm. Um, By that time, my parents did not want me to be a professional dancer. They didn't deem that practical? No, and nice nice girls don't go off and do theater. Right. It was fine for other people to do it and for people to watch and enjoy. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as I said, they took me to the ballet. They took me to the theater. Um, right. So I was exposed my whole life with that, but it wasn't something that their daughter should be doing. But I pursued it anyway. At 18, I moved to Boston and was fortunate enough to get a scholarship, full scholarship to the Boston Conservatory of Music and um, spent almost three years there. I went year-round so I could finish. And then right before my last semester, I was I went to an audition for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater School and was given a full scholarship there and invited into Ailey II, which was a huge honor. Unfortunately, New York in the 70s was not a great place for a young woman to be on her own and not having that family support, not having family around. I was in the city by myself, and it was a very rough place, and I chose not to stay there. I went through about anorexia and just knew that it was not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. So I left the city, went through some health issues with the anorexia, recovered, and then I went back to Boston and met some people from Argentina. And one of my teachers at the Boston Conservatory had been a very renowned modern dance teacher in Argentina. And I was invited to travel there for a Christmas holiday and had nothing really else to do, so I went. And while I was there, I took some classes, met some other dancers, and was offered a job to teach modern ballet for a year at a studio there and so I returned after my holiday went through all the paperwork and went to Argentina thinking for a year and ended up staying close to eight years there I absolutely fell in love with the country with the culture with the theater and was fortunately very successful there while I was there I married and had a child and my child was born with some health issues. Fortunately, he's now 30 years old and fine, but the health issues potentially were very serious at the time he was born, and my family, with encouragement, and my husband at the time, we decided that we would come back to the United States for his health care. To make a long story short, we got back here, and in 1989, There was no Affordable Care Act, nothing for an insurance company to insure someone with a pre-existing condition. So in 1989, I had my first realizations of what healthcare in the United States really was all about. 
Now, mind you, I moved from Argentina where there is universal health care and mm-hmm. some of the best doctors in the world. Very shortly after arriving back in the United States, I realized I had made a huge mistake. Mm. Um, my husband was a doctor, and he came to the United States for about a month and said, I can't live here. Mm-hmm. can't do this in this country. And he packed up and left. And he left me with a year-old sick child to take care of on my own. It was kind of devastating. And, and, and you probably saw your dance career up in smoke at that point, too. Yes. And I moved to, to Charleston, South Carolina, because my parents had moved here during the time that I was away. I was offered a job with a local dance company here to teach and dance. And it was a very small local dance company. It was not, uh, this may sound a little snobby, but when it comes to dance and theater, I am a little snobby. (laughs) Um, I had, you know, a pretty amazing education. I didn't do a lot of performing here in the United States. I did a lot of learning here, which I'm very grateful for. But a small local dance company was not quite what I was accustomed to. So it was challenging, and it didn't matter because in the end I had to get a job that offered group health insurance so I could insure my son. I started looking. I was not really qualified for anything else. I had an amazing education. High school was phenomenal, but it did not prepare me for the real world outside of the arts. So a friend of my mom's was saying, well, the fire de- local fire department needs a female firefighter for affirmative action. You're fit. You're healthy. You know, you're strong. I was like, are you kidding me? This pretty <laughs> little ballerina. And my son had a plastic fireman's hat at the time. And I put it on and I started dancing around the living room with pretending to be a firefighter. And was laughing. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, seriously, Marco, what do you have to lose? you got nothing to lose. Why don't you just go talk to the fire chief and, mm-hmm. you know, see what he says? And I went, okay, you're right. What the heck? So I took myself and my son at the time, because he was going everywhere with me, went to the fire chief's office, and we talked for about an hour, and he said, you know, I'd love to have you. And he said, we'll train you. We have a six-month probationary period. Mm-hmm. At the end, if we don't like you, you know, you don't stay. If you don't like us, you don't stay. So but I to be clear, you didn't what? you didn't do your firefighter dance for him, I assume. No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. I did that later once I was hired. Got it. Got it. Firefight in the fire department dorms. Yeah, it was. As, as a matter of fact, we have a number of pictures of me dancing in my bunker gear. Um, <laughs> even at fire scenes, you know, when things calmed down, we, you know, I would kind of joke around. You found yourself at what age being a firefighter? Much to your own surprise. Thirty. Let's see, 33, 34 years old. And to me, though, um, I just kind of took it on as another role in a production. I had quick costume changes. I had to learn scripts and movements and, you know, kind of there's a dance there. You know, you have to learn how to lug hose and carry chainsaws and stretchers and, you know, the whole... Um, emergency medicine thing. Firefighters are most often the first responders on any emergency scene. And 
education, which, you know, goes back to my initial training as a child. Education was, not, you know, number one, and you are constantly educating in the fire service. I had to become an EMT to be on our emergency medical response truck, and I loved that. I found that I really took to the emergency medicine, so I studied for and passed my EMT and then wanted to become a paramedic, and in where I live, at that time, in order to become a paramedic, you had to ride on an emergency medical services program. And in that, here in Charleston, it was um, Charleston County Emergency Medicine Service, EMS. I applied for a job with them and was hired and loved it. I mean, I just loved the, the rush, the adrenaline rush. Again, it was very much like the theater. You know, you memorize lines, you learn how to interact with other performers, you know, your your patients and your coworkers, you know, the sirens go off, the tones go out, and off you go. I learned to drive emergency vehicles. I drove fire truck ambulances. That unto itself was very cool. I was having a great time getting ready to go to paramedic school when they say life changes in a moment, and that is exactly what happened to me. I was on a call one day. We had a large unconscious diabetic patient, and we were in the emergency room of our local hospital when the stretcher gave way. We don't really know what happened. It was never proven that the stretcher broke. Mm -hmm. I trust my partner completely, so I don't think, you know, he did anything wrong, but Mm -hmm. in a split second, the stretcher and patient dropped straight down to the floor I guess, you know, in that instant, you don't really know what happened. Apparently, I tried to hold on to the stretcher. All I remember is going, oh, I can't feel my arms and collapse to the floor. And the rest is kind of a blur. Did the patient fall on you? No, the patient was safe on the stretcher, just dropped straight down to the floor. Apparently, I held on to the head end of the stretcher. It dropped straight down, so it took me forward, apparently, and what they say was the equivalent of a whiplash injury. So imagine your shoulders dropping down and my head kind of went backwards and snapped my neck that way and crushed the cervical spine from C4 to C6. I did not stay in that emergency room. They transported me to another emergency room, which took care of workers' comp patients. Mm -hmm. That's a whole interesting thing unto itself. And so it took a long time to get a proper diagnosis. Apparently, a lot of people try and scan the system. And so I was treated with a lot of caution. You know, was I really hurt? And sadly, I did not get the care, the immediate care I needed. And it dragged on and worsened. And I had to really be an advocate for myself, I was not completely paralyzed immediately, and in that incident was not ever completely paralyzed. My doctor, who finally said, mm, this isn't good, said, I have no idea how you're functioning. You should not be functioning. I learned several weeks later I had crushed my spinal cord flat, and there was almost no spinal fluid passing through it but I was still dragging myself around 
my feet were dragging and it was progressively getting worse, pain, discomfort. And I was a single mom with a five-year-old. And this doctor who they finally sent me to this specialist said, I don't know how you're functioning and you need surgery. And I'm scheduling surgery for next week. Like, yeah, I have a child and I, you know, nope. And he said, well, Marka, I'm going to give you your scans. You do whatever you need with them. Get second opinions and let me know what you want to do. But I'm going to tell you, get all your ducks in a row. And I looked and I said, what do you mean? He said, do you have a will? <laughs> wow. <"What?" laughs> yeah. I said, a will? He said, yeah. He said, I want you to get all of your ducks in a row. I'm not going to tell you that if you could sneeze, you could be completely paralyzed. But if you sneeze, you could not be able to move from the shoulders down. It's that serious. I was like, whoa, threw me into a tailspin. So what do you do with that? Fortunately, I have a cousin who is a neurospecialist in Baltimore, and we sent the scans to him. And my regular orthopedist growing up, you know, the family orthopedist, mm -hmm. you know, for regular broken bones and stuff. And they both said, uh-uh, surgery should have been yesterday. Go. Hmm. And in that time, I wrangled up a friend who was a lawyer who did a will and living, living will and all mm -hmm. the stuff, trust for my son, everything that needed to happen. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine from Argentina came to take care of my son while I was in surgery and recovery. Um, it was a pretty wild couple of weeks. So got that done. I had a laminectomy. They took out most of C4 vertebrae and everything down to most of C6, left enough to put in a cadaver bone, donor bone, mm -hmm. a metal plate, screws. And I was in the hospital for almost a week. And then they sent me home and said, good luck. I was like, whoa, now what do I do with my life? Right. Workers' comp was covering the essentials, but they weren't real happy. Workers' mm -hmm. comp was very different then than it is now. And when we say then, and this is 1994, is that correct? 1994. And there wasn't a whole lot of, you know, you had a spinal cord injury. You pretty much were left to your own devices and... Right. Good luck to you. And uh, Superman had had his accident. Ah, uh, Christopher Reeve. Um, but I didn't know a whole, yes. <laughs> yeah. Didn't know a whole <laughs> lot about that at the time. You you and he were not in social circles at the time? No, unfortunately, I never met that level of performing arts. Financially, I was in a very limited spot. My family was here, you know, my family's great, but they didn't know what to do with this, and I was... Right. You know, still kind of that crazy dancer that was outside of their socioeconomic structure. And my surgeon sent me to physical therapy. And the, so this is for all physical therapists. I went to physical therapy and I was walking, but it was very badly. I was very, very, very weak from the shoulders down. Very, very weak. And I sat down in a chair, and the physical therapist put a one-pound weight in my hand, and it fell out. He said, hold on to it. I said, I tried. 
And he said, well, what do you mean you can't hold on to it? And I said, I'm trying. Can't. I can't. And he looked at me and said, well, that wouldn't make any sense unless you had cer- um, cervical myelopathy. And I said, well, that I remember being mentioned by my doctor. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I guess I'd better call down for your chart. And I, I looked at so. him and I said, you have not looked at my medical chart? And he said, well, no, I'll get it. I'll get it. And he stammered quite a lot. And I said, don't bother. And he looked at me and said, what do you mean, don't bother? I said, as I said, don't bother. Would you please take me to a phone? You know, back in 1994, we didn't have cell phones. Right. I still had a walkie-talkie from Charleston County EMS because I helped. I spoke Spanish, so I was translated for them. Um, mm. But I didn't have a cell phone to call mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. And I went to the phone, and I called my boyfriend at the time, and I said, come get me. He said, you just started. And I said, I know. Please come get me. It isn't happening. Mm-hmm. And so I got picked up, went home, and said, I'm going to have to do something on my own. And I called my doctor, and I said, I'm not going back to physical therapy. told him what happened. He goes, well, Marka, you know, of all my patients, you know your body best as a dancer. Do what you feel is right. right. I won't put you down as a non-compliant patient. So I started using my ballet training. I had studied anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, pedagogy mm-hmm. for dancers, you know, how mm-hmm. to teach dance. Right. And so I started teaching myself. And in Argentina, I had created a program for actors who were not dancers who wanted to move better for musical theater. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I started. And um, about six six months into this, I I went back to the surgeon. And, of course, I had been seeing the surgeon on a regular basis for follow-ups. But we had a more um, in-depth appointment six months mm-hmm. in and he started testing my nerves and my muscles and he looked at me and says, Marco, you have a bicep. Where is that <laughs> from? And it was still a very weak bicep, but... I but a bicep, nonetheless. It, right. And I, he said, where is this coming from? I said, port de bras. He said, what's that? And it's movement of the arms, dance, ballet movement of the arms. He said, well, I don't know what you're doing, but keep doing it. So I kept doing it, and I kept doing it at home, and I was put out of work, put on disability. I wanted to go back to work. Of course, working on an ambulance was not ever going to be possible. Um, I said, what about dispatch? No, you're not going to be able to sit for 12 hours in the dispatch office. And I said, I can try. They said, nope. So they cut me loose. So I was a disabled mom in my 30s. One good thing was I got to spend a lot of time with my son, so I volunteered time at his school and taught Spanish in, ex- um, in exchange for teaching, or teaching in exchange for some of his tuition because he was at a Catholic school at the time, and starting to learn a lot about you know health insurance and the politics of the time. And it was very hard between his medical bills and my medical bills and getting him through school. But in 2001, one of my doctors suggested that I 
go to the Medical University of South, South Carolina's wellness center. It was a huge fitness center. And he told me they had a dance program there, and I started laughing. Yeah, I'll never dance again. Fast forward, I went, started working out there, doing my dance stuff in a fitness gym. <laughs> it was pretty mm-hmm. crazy. Was still wearing a neck brace for protection for what mm-hmm. I did. And this guy came up to me and said, are you a dancer? I said, well, I used to be. He said, nah, you still are. And mm-hmm. kept watching me and came back up and said, you know, I have a dance program here. I'd love for you to come take some of our dance classes and check it out. Yeah, that's crazy. But I started, I took my first ballet class in 2001 in a neck brace Hmm. at the wellness center, and it was very basic. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did very basic things, but it was really kind of cool. And then he asked me to be the artistic director of his dance company that he had based there. And I started teaching dance again. And from there, I decided to get into fitness a little more because that's what was close to me. Physical therapy was a non-issue in my life by that time. I got my personal trainer certificate and was doing group fitness and started was asked to teach at some local dance studios. And I was back to teaching ballet. And then in June of 2012, and all of this was very part-time. Let me put that in uh-huh. But in 2012, something happened. In 2012, I was coming home from teaching a fitness class to the elderly. I do, did a modified, you know, using what I knew of the body mm-hmm. and needing to modify things for myself. Um, I was, that's what I was teaching at the wellness center. And coming home, and a young lady ran a red light at a high speed and T-boned me in the driver's door and in that instant left me immobile from the shoulders down. The paramedic that was on scene was the paramedic that first showed me what an ambulance was, what the inside of an ambulance looked like. My first call, first medical call was with him. Wow. And yeah. He looked at me and looked through the car window and said, you could have just visited me at the station. You didn't have to do this. <laughs> he really kept his sense of humor while I was in la-la land. I, I was kind of, I was never really unconscious, but mm-hmm. when you you go through something like that, nothing's really clear at the time. Right. And I got to the hospital and it, things are very, were very in and out. Uh, I gave them the wrong phone number for my boyfriend. I was in the hospital for hours. He called my cell phone. Apparently a nurse answered and said, Marcus' cell phone. He had no idea, and I thought they had called him to come. See, come you know, to come. I knew things weren't good when my neurosurgeon's PA came to see me, and... She poked me with the needle, and I felt it below my left scapula, and I went, ah, that hurt. She said, Mark, I've been doing that since your feet, Hmm. and I'm laid out on a backboard. A quick break to tell you about Choose PT, the American Physical Therapy Association's national public awareness campaign. America is currently in the grips of an opioid epidemic. In some situations, dosed appropriately, 
prescription opioids are an appropriate part of medical treatment. But opioids only mask the sensation of pain, and opioid risks include depression, overdose, addiction, and withdrawal. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is urging healthcare providers to reduce the use of opioids in favor of safer alternatives like physical therapy for treating pain. Learn how a physical therapist can help you at moveforwardpt.com slash choose PT. And now, back to this episode of Move Forward Radio. Uh, Mark, I want, one question I have, uh, you know, er, early on here when you're kind of, uh, you're, 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 your thinking is kind of hazy and everything, did you, did you have the sort of presence of mind at that point to think, you know, oh my God, this is like the second time something really major has happened to me. Am I, am I snake bit or what? Like, what, what's going on with my karma, you know? Those types of questions. No, actually, I did not until well, that's and it was it was my neurosurgeon mm-hmm. who then came to the hospital, and that's when I knew it was really bad because mm-hmm. neurosurgeons don't go to emergency room. And he came in and got down by my ear and said, my, "He and he's from Romania. He has a very cool Romanian accent. He says, uh-huh. Most people don't have injuries like this once in a lifetime, but twice? Really? <laughs> he patted me on the shoulder, and he whispered in my ear, I've got you. I don't remember anything after that hmm. until being wheeled into Ropa Rehabilitation Hospital several days later. Hmm. Um, I have no idea what happened to me from the ER to mm-hmm. that place. But his, his saying, was, I've, got, I've got you, must have stuck with you. Oh, yeah. And to this yeah. day. Mm-hmm. To this day it does. And I don't really have any good thoughts about your question until much later. You know, the first couple of days in the rehabilitation hospital are, are fuzzy. You know, when you can't move, you can't, I'm sorry, I'm going to just put it crudely, when you can't pee or poop, yeah. You can't feed yourself. You can't push a button to call for help. Yeah. Life kind of takes a tailspin. And I do remember that the, my room was dark. There weren't a lot of lights. There were a lot of instruments. And I didn't have any kind of trauma, you know, no head injury, no bleeding, no nothing. It wasn't until later that I, I realized I had had some trauma because... I had a cataract removed a year later, which they are pretty sure came from the from the trauma of mm-hmm. the hit the hit mm-hmm. to my left side, mm-hmm. only one side. Uh, it was a couple of days later that I kind of started realizing when my first physical therapist came in and said, "Okay, let's see what's going on here," and I went, "Yeah," and that's when it hit me, and that's when I realized that this was serious, and I didn't know that working hard was going to get me through it. I did know that I didn't have an option but to work hard. My son was living in New York City. He had an adopted father because his father had passed away. I had a fabulous husband who we didn't stay married, but he's still my best friend. He adopted my son when my son was younger. But really, the only person in my son's life of any you know, consistency was me. And I knew I needed to kind of keep going for him. He was your motivation. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I was in a rehabilitation hospital that was very, very, very different than what I had experienced in 1994. 
um, they work as a team, the doctors, nurses, pharmacists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, recreational therapists, social workers. Mm -hmm. It's a united team to help you through everything. Right. And so we started looking at all of the options, what I could and couldn't do. I was fortunate um, to be put into a manual chair because they did not have a power chair at the time in the hospital Mm -hmm. for me to use. So I said, well, I'll learn how to push a manual chair. And they were kind of like, yeah, you know, you can barely use your arms. But I said, you know, what do we have to lose? And you have to get me in a chair to push me around to get me from my room to the rehab gym to scans or x-rays. So let's do it. And that kind of was my motivation. I said, I am an athlete. Dancers are athletes. You have to push me like one. And they did. And I had two therapists, an OT and a PT, who really just went with it. They allowed me to try all kinds of different things. And Mm -hmm. I was there for almost two months. And Mm -hmm. I left there on a Thursday late afternoon, went home. My boyfriend, and we've, we've been together for 10 years now. He's been great. He had partially modified his house where I was living at the time so I could, I mean, he cut a hole in the wall so I could get into the bathroom. It was a, you know, trial and error. I try to keep a sense of humor. We laughed through a lot of things. Um, the first shower, I tried to transfer on a shower chair and accidentally sat on my hand and lower arm and couldn't move. I fell over and needed help. <laughs> <laughs> I, but at that time, I had recovered some use of my arms and hands, but it wasn't enough to get me out of that situation. Right, right. Um, but I left on a Thursday night and Friday morning at 9 o'clock. I was back in outpatient therapy at the same hospital mm. doing therapy. And, you know, just everything from trying to sit up on my own, which I could not do for a long time, mm-hmm. um, to transferring in and out of my chair, um, transferring different heights, you know, from a lower place up into my chair, eventually getting to the floor and back into my chair, um, holding on to things so I could, you know, feed myself, cell phone, and my ultimate goal at that point was to drive myself because I was having to use our local Telluride service to get around or other people to take me from place to place. And so therapists were kind of my link to the rest of my life. And I do feel compelled to note here, as a as an employee of the American Physical Therapy Association, it seems that your second major uh, major uh, interface with physical therapy was a much more successful one than your than your first one. And is, is that is that a correct summation? It was, but it was still rocky, to be honest. And be, because was, why? Because I think our society, just like all of our education, we create these pretty little boxes. Mm-hmm. And every student of anything, from kindergarten on up through doctorate programs, there are parameters that are set and there are standards, you know, operating procedures mm-hmm. that are set. In Mm -hmm. every career, in Mm -hmm. every single thing that we do in this world. Mm -hmm. And you memorize those. You take a test to 
make sure that someone knows that you have memorized those procedures. And then you go out into the real world and you use those procedures. Unfortunately, as any decent teacher, therapist, doctor, etc., should know, mm -hmm. those parameters are not always enough. Real life, and I learned this on an ambulance, you know, I was taught A, B, C, D to take care of a patient. And unfortunately, you get it in a real life situation. Sometimes you need to go to X before Things you... Things are a lot messier than that. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. And so my therapists were wonderful. They mm -hmm. knew exactly what they had been taught, and they were following their parameters. What they weren't taking into account was at this point a 56-year-old, very well-educated, very stubborn, very mm -hmm. disciplined dancer patient. Mm -hmm. And I was going to do the best I could with what I had at the time to be the best that I can be in the future. And they didn't understand that. And when I said things like, no, don't hold me up, let go, they didn't want to let go. And when I said, I want to try bracing, they looked at me like I was crazy. That was two years in. You know, this was a very long, slow process. And people who look at where I am today who think, wow, you know, God, boy, you, you're doing great. Most people don't see. This they don't know the backstory. Half year process, right? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. the backstory has been brutal. Mm -hmm. It has been brutal. Um, and, and your backstory has a lot to do with to self self advocacy. Self advocacy is the key here. Yes, and I even fired a physical therapist. <laughs> I did. I went in yeah. and said, I need another set of eyes because you know I love her. She's wonderful, but. She is stuck in her place. So we, you know, within the same situation. And she is now my physical therapist again. And I adore her for being open to watch my progress. You know, all of the therapists who I work with now. But, yeah, it was a process to get people to understand that there are other things than what's written in the books. So, Marco, where where are you now? Uh, what what are you doing? What are you capable of doing? What is what does your life look like now in 2018, the end of 2018, as as we talk? So, as of today, I am a um, still a fiercely independent person, and I realized several years ago that um, when my boyfriend went away for a week, that I am completely independent as long as everything is pre-planned. So things are set up for me to be independent. I can cook for myself in my wheelchair as long as everything is reachable. I drive myself places. I can, all my daily, you know, um, activities of daily living are, are taken care of by myself. Again, as long as everything's set up, I have my shower chair. I have my things where I can reach them. I have these wonderful mechanical leg braces, Autobach EMAG Active Stance Control Braces. And if anybody ever wants to reach out and ask me questions about that, I'm happy to share that experience. They are wonderful for 
exercise and doing some things around the house. They are not, at this time, I can't use them to get up in the morning, put them on, and go about my daily life. Mm -hmm. um, I hope to, in the future, I do things around my house in them. I take walks in safe environments in them. I go to CrossFit in them. I am doing modified CrossFit. I know it's called adaptive CrossFit, but I don't know. There's a word adaptive that kind of makes my stomach curdle a little bit. <laughs> Words like disabled and adaptive. Right. I'm not disabled. I'm differently abled, but I'm not disabled. I still teach ballet from my wheelchair. Sometimes I take my braces and I will stand to teach. I uh, am taking a yoga teacher certification, not modified. I do it modified, but the certification is for any standing, walking person. And I'm loving that. Hopefully in March I will be finished that and will be – I don't know if I'm going to teach yoga, but I want to apply it to helping others, helping mm -hmm. patients. I work as a peer mentor for um, Roper Hospital and MUSC um, sometimes. I am working with MUSC on a research project studying the importance of peer mentoring, peer navigating. Um, I was just invited. Excuse me. Excuse me. When you when you say peer mentoring, do you mean other people in your type of physical situation, or, or how are you defining peer oh, yeah. there? Yes. So a peer is someone who is similar to you. Mm -hmm. In my case, people who have had spinal cord injury. Okay. Um, and then I will um, talk to them and see if they need help adjusting, just letting them talk if they want, try and help them through the process. I had a peer mentor, two peer mentors when I was inpatient, and it was helpful to talk to them about different possibilities, like driving, for example, how I could drive. And, it's, you know, it's one thing to hear it from somebody who's standing there and getting in the car and drives, but when you talk to somebody else who drives with their hands, it's really not as scary because you can you see that it's actually doable. So I do that. I was invited to be on the board of the South Carolina Spinal Cord Injury Association, which I'm very proud of. And in November, I was partnered with a service dog. Um, two days ago was our graduation with PALS, Palmetto Assistant Life Services. They train service dogs for people like me, PTSD, seizures, all different kinds of service dogs. Sorry, I'm mm -hmm. stammering. And so I have a dog now who helps me through my daily life, like opening heavy doors. You'd be surprised um, how many bathroom doors are too heavy to open. Mm -hmm. I have been in situations where I have had to call a restaurant and say, hey, come get me out of your bathroom. And he was like, what do you mean? You know, figured it's rejected. I'm the woman in the wheelchair that she sat in the table over there. Come get mm -hmm. me. So this dog can help me open doors and pick things up, just help my shoulders and my back. So, I'm, you know, I, if I drop something, I don't have to constantly. And I'm constantly dropping things because my hands don't work so well. So I, I am mostly independent. I travel somewhat independently. My son lives in New York City. Most of my family is in Baltimore, so I travel on a plane and sometimes drive. Can't drive long distances by myself, but because um, I can't pump gas. And those mm -hmm. are all things that you know you work through. And again, back to the physical therapy piece. You know, we've tried. Could I transfer into a vehicle and 
break down my chair and put it into the vehicle. So I could do things like pumping my own gas. Unfortunately, I'm just not physically capable of that at this point. I don't know that I ever will be. I might, but not at this time. I do a lot of alternative medicine, which I call integrative because I don't take away traditional Western medicine, but I also incorporate acupuncture. I came to the teacher certification for yoga because I have done yoga for years. And I got on the floor at home. A lot of my my physical therapy was by myself and not to take anything away from physical therapists, but I think a good physical therapy will really push that their job is very minimalistic mm-hmm. in that you may have a patient a couple of times a week. If you're mm-hmm. lucky, you may have a patient an hour or two a week. Mm-hmm. Then they go home right. or back to their room in the hospital. and. Right. If they don't really reinforce the importance of the patient doing their work on their own, the patient will never get better. It's like somebody who goes to a gym once a week for a fitness class. They get a good sweat on for an hour, but then the rest of the week they're not doing anything. They're not going to get better. They're not going to get healthier. They're not going to improve. It is a full-time job to take care of yourself, whether you have a spinal cord injury or whether you're a physical therapist. Physical therapists, if they don't take care of themselves on a day-to-day basis, they're not going to be able to do their jobs. You know, heck, a teacher, if they're not eating right, taking care of themselves on a day-to-day basis, they're not going to be able to do their jobs. I think that's the biggest piece of the puzzle for any therapist to a patient. And giving somebody something that they can do realistically at home. You know, I came home, got on a yoga mat on the floor and laid there, rolling around, trying to, what could I move, trying to, you know, could I sit up, could I lay down, could I roll around, could I put a foot up onto something higher, you know, so I could do, you know, reverse inclination to let the blood go from my feet down to the rest of my body. All of those things. And granted, if there was ever a person who was prepared for an injury like mine, it was me, given my entire life history and the discipline that I have been taught from such an early age. But that doesn't mean that other people can't learn that as well. Segwaying from that, I I understand that, uh, you know, this is not the first time that you've told your story to a a group of people. Uh, What... What message, if you will? I mean, what, what, what do you take from your experiences? What, what message do you try to import, impart to people who you tell your story to? Hashtag life is doable. I think we come into this world and we try to understand, legitimize, classify, generalize everything in the world around us. When, in fact, we really don't have a clue. From politics to religion, medicine, education, and we think, we try to prove, we try to have faith in something that's not tangible. And I think that in the world, the best thing we can do is find something that feels right, teach our children to do the same, allow our children to be who they are, 
to be kind to others, to work at what we love to do, to share but not push our beliefs and feelings onto others, and to live utilizing the things we have available to us, respecting the things that we have around us, and trying to live the best life we can. I, I want to close with this. There's a there's a phrase that uh, that I know that you've used before, and I, I believe you, you can tell me the the source of it. But I believe it's a it's maybe Chinese. Sit like a turtle, walk like a pigeon, sleep like a dog. What what, what is what what is what is that about? What does that say? If you sit like a turtle, you are quiet. You are you can allow the world around you to be. You can listen. You can observe awareness is so important in our lives. Keep quiet. Keep still. When you walk like a pigeon, sprightly, you know, kind of lively, you can interact with the world around you, be a part of things, being happy, feeding yourself, feeding your food for your soul and your body. And when you sleep like a dog, you are resting and allowing your body to be so it can com- you can prepare yourself for another day, for more time, for more experiences to come. Dogs don't toss and turn. They dream, and they dream deeply. If you've ever watched a dog sleep, you know they're dreaming. So it allows that your body and your mind to rest. And I think that, you know, when you are still and listen and become aware, you open your heart to so many new experiences. And when you kind of dance around like a pigeon, you can be free to feed yourself, your soul, and your body, as I said. And then when you sleep, you can prepare yourself to do it all over again. Marco Rogers, thanks so much for speaking with us on Move Forward Radio. We we really have appreciated your sharing your story. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I hope it helps others, and I'm available if I can help anybody. You've been listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or find previous episodes at MoveForwardPT.com. Move Forward Radio is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Find a physical therapist near you at MoveForwardPT.com.